This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Scott Lemieux, lecturer at the University of Washington's Department of Political Science, and Todd Tucker, Roosevelt Institute Fellow and author of Judge Not, Politics and Development in International Investment Law. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Now, a quick note to our listeners, we are recording on July 10th. Given that news is coming out at such a fast pace, by the time you're tuning in, you might know something we don't about what we're discussing today, which is the Supreme Court. So let's jump right into things. Yesterday, Donald Trump announced his pick to fill the seat of Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Who is the nominee? Why is he awful? Scott, can you start us off? Sure. So the, uh, the nominee is, uh, is Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, uh, I, I, I actually I literally had three pieces come out of the Supreme Court today, so it's been a busy week. Uh, but you know, basically, he's a you know very much what you would expect of a contemporary uh, Republican nominee. Uh, you know, has the Ivy League, so he's got Yale, both undergraduate and law school. And uh, uh, as many people know, uh, every member of the Supreme Court now currently attended either Harvard or Yale Law School. Although Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to settle for a degree from Columbia, so kind of a no, not quite at that. Uh, but uh, more importantly is that, um, you know, ideologically, he can be expected to be um, very, very conservative, um, you know, very much in the mold of Samuel Alito or Neil Gorsuch, that if you look at his record, um, there's nothing incredibly off the wall. He just very consistently takes the most conservative position available to him. And he also has a long history in Republican politics. He was part of the, um, the uh, Ken Starr's investigation into the Clintons. Uh, he was part of the, uh, the legal team in Bush versus Gore, uh, you know, just a variety sort of at, you know, every stage, um, you know, he's been involved in, in Republican legal battles. So that's really, he's, um, you know, this is the, uh, the reward that, uh, that Republican voters got. It's just a very, very consistent, uh, you know, uh, Republican vote. But having said that, that the same is true for all four members of the shortlist, uh, that uh, the conservative legal movement has gotten together, and basically the only acceptable nominees are judges who you can expect to vote like this. So, um, you know, Kavanaugh is, is you know, nothing, uh, nothing to like, but also no worse, really, than any, anybody else who's under consideration. This is pretty much, pretty much what was going to be on offer. So analyses have found that Kavanaugh is even more far right than Gorsuch. The only sitting justice who is even more conservative than Kavanaugh is Clarence Thomas. I think to kind of contextualize things, it would be good to go over what the Supreme Court has been like with a 5-4 conservative majority. With Neil Gorsuch, there have been a lot of big decisions recently, big conservative decisions. Todd, could you maybe walk us through some of them, walk us through how Gorsuch has had an impact? Sure. I mean, well, in the last few weeks, we've just seen uh, uh, an outpouring of objectionable Supreme Court precedent after precedent. Uh, you know, uh, a week or so ago, we had uh, the ruling in favor of, of Trump's Muslim ban, the travel ban uh, on 
on uh, immigration from from several majority Muslim countries. Uh, we've seen the Supreme Court uh, striking down some of the benefits uh, of the public sector unions enjoy that workers enjoy uh, in the in the Janus case. Um, that's going to make it sort of effectively very difficult for unions to continue to survive. Even though even though the they'll continue to be legal, it will just be as a practical matter difficult for them to finance themselves. Um, so we've seen kind of just really case after case of troubling decisions. And you know this is already with sort of the vote of Anthony Kennedy, the retiring justice, who's uh, who's traditionally been the the swing justice on the court. Although I should say. That that's, that's kind of the reputation. And on certain issues, he certainly has been a swing justice. But on a lot of sort of fundamental economic justice questions, Kennedy has been a reliably conservative vote. So in terms of just the vote numbers, the vote numbers aren't going to change greatly uh, with Kavanaugh in there. But I think it's it's more the, the reasoning and sort of the center of gravity on the court. Uh, you know, now we're going to be in a situation where Chief Justice Roberts, who, you know, famously uh, provided uh, the swing vote to uphold uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, he's more conservative in many respects than Kennedy, uh, and he'll now sort of be the swing vote uh, in a court where, you know, Alito, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and, and Gorsuch uh, are sort of reliably conservative, and Roberts, for sort of institutional reasons and basically uh, a desire to kind of uh, keep the integrity of the court uh, uh, intact, will occasionally provide a swing vote. But it's uh, it's not looking good. And then sort of when you combine that with the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to be turning 86 in August, Stephen Brown. Breyer, another liberal justice, going to be turning 80 this August. Uh, we're looking at a situation where any sort of insurance executive that was selling life insurance uh, on these on these two justices would tell you there's a decent chance that uh, even before uh, Trump's uh, midterm election, uh, he could have an opportunity for for one or two more slots to fill. So uh, so we're going to have you know a bunch of sort of relatively young uh, conservative justices, and then uh, Sotomayor, it's, who's 64 years old, and Kagan, who's 58. So it's going to be you know. Despite the fact that sort of Democrats have won uh, six out of the last seven presidential elections, if you look at it by popular vote, that's that's 85 percent. You you face a possibility where the, the, the Republicans might have sort of 77 percent of the Supreme Court justice seat. So it's a uh, it's a real uh, it's a real sort of unequal situation. Yeah, I, I that's I, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, and definitely like in the sense, the last term was sort of a preview of what we're in for. Um, you know, and, and Justice Kennedy hasn't, you know, always been that reliably conservative. Certainly, if you look at the 2016 term, he was actually unusually liberal in terms of his 5 4 votes. But really, what we saw last term, um, you know, all these issues and, you know, including, you know, voting rights, um, you know, Kennedy is joining with the conservatives again and again. And the, the real uh, important part here is not just that Justice Kennedy is more conservative in his reputation, but that it solidifies that so that you've now got a somewhat more conservative median vote, but Kavanaugh figures to be on the court for several decades. So that with Kennedy there, there's the possibility um, for uh, the next Democratic president to immediately uh, appoint the median vote. And that's now gone away. And again, it's it's bad and should um, Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer leave, um, as Todd notes, uh, catastrophic. One initial point I wanted to make, just a political science point, is that, you know, if you look at a lot of measures, it will show Justice Thomas being, you know, by far the most conservative justice. But it depends on how you look at it. That, that part of the reason for that is that Justice Thomas is the most likely to kind of stake out positions beyond which there are five votes for. So on these metrics, Joseph is being conservative. But if you rank judges on who's likely to vote for the most conservative position, um, you could argue that Alito and Gorsuch are actually more conservative, that there are a few issues like on the Fourth Amendment 
where Thomas has sided with liberals, where basically there are you know essentially no issues on which Alito has. Is one way of looking at it that um, you know Alito is in some ways the most conservative member of the court, and I'd expect Kavanaugh to very much fall within that general uh, general trajectory. What does that mean in terms of decisions? I think the biggest question right now is what does this mean for Roe v. Wade? Let's start there. Yeah, so if people are interested, I have a, a kind of a shorter piece at, at Reuters and then a epic piece that just went up at Fox about this. But what I would say, uh, I think the, the short version is that the, the wrong question to focus on is, will the Supreme Court issue an opinion announcing that Roe versus Wade has been overruled? Uh, it certainly could. Uh, my guess is that that's a longer term thing, that it won't happen before the midterms. What we really want to look at is, how is the court actually going to approach state abortion statutes? And I think the answer to that is that this court, once Kavanaugh gets confirmed, is never going to rule state regulation of abortion unconstitutional. Um, and what they're likely to do is start out by, um, you know, upholding various uh, restrictions on abortion clinics, uh, you know, expanded waiting periods, um, you know, and just, you know, without addressing the question of whether Roe is still good law, just simply allow that. And there are already six states in the country in which there are only one abortion clinic uh, because of the regulatory burdens placed on them. And this will be a green light for states to experiment more and more. And so, uh, you know, the court may not overrule Roe immediately, but what it is going to do is just, you know, give the Matador's cape to all of these regulations. So, um, you know, and that's what uh, uh, Todd mentioned, the Janus decision. And what happened there is that there were several decisions kind of slowly undermining the right before it was finally overruled. And I think that's what's most likely to happen to Roe. But the key thing is not you know, what the court says it's doing. The, co- the question is how much protection will the court afford reproductive rights? And the answer to that is going to be none. <laughs> and that's really the, uh, the, the key thing to focus on. Um, this is really um, you know, things that had already been getting worse. Um, and um, this, is, this is going to accelerate things that um, for women in red states, um, and particularly women, uh, poor women or women in rural areas, this is a, a disaster. Uh, that will effectively remove uh, uh, any access they have to state abortions. So what about other civil rights and liberties? What's likely to happen with LGBTQ equality, racial justice, economic justice, privacy rights? Well, there's a few. But so I would say um, economic issues, it's very easy because as Todd said, Kennedy was already in that. So uh, that's going to be a disaster. Um, you're going to see uh, consistently see uh, ar- you know, arbitration and labor laws uh, uh, interpreted uh, against the rights of employees. Um, yeah, you're going to see uh, make it more difficult to advise uh, civil rights laws. And a really big one is, is voting rights. Uh, you know, 2013, the Supreme Court um, uh, struck down one of the most important parts of the Voting Rights Act, uh, requiring uh, states the history of discrimination to, uh, to pre-clear any changes with uh, the Department of Justice, and really in a, in a decision uh, in the last week of the term, they you know, interpreted uh, the, the Voting Rights Act to effectively make uh, Sections 2 and 3 unenforceable, that basically, no matter how strong the evidence of discrimination is, they essentially held that you know, we have to presume that you know, racism is such a serious charge, we have to presume that legislators aren't uh, discriminating, even if they're clearly targeting disenfranchisement uh, measures at African-American voters. So that's already bad. It's going to keep getting worse. Um, the interesting question is on, on LBGT rights. And, you know, I, unlike a row, I'm certain will be effectively overruled, whether directly or indirectly. Uh, I'm not sure about the Obergefell decision. It's certainly possible. Uh, all four 
remaining, uh, or the three uh, remaining Republican members of the court that dissented, and I'm sure Gorsuch would have as well. You know, that's where the kind of institutional stuff Todd was talking about comes in. Is Roberts going to see this as, I don't agree with the opinion, but it's a settled right, uh, it's become more popular, we're not going to disturb that, or is he willing to say it was wrong, you know, maybe we'll grandfather in uh, couples who've got same-sex marriages, but we'll leave it to the states. I, I would lean towards saying that they're not going to overrule Obergefell, but I, I, I think people might be overconfident about it too. Um, and that's particularly true should Trump get another nomination. So that, you know, keep in mind that Congress may not be the swing vote uh, when that comes up either. Uh, but so I think that there is some uncertainty. But I think where you are going to see, uh, like in the Masters uh, Peace Kayshaw case, even if the right to same sex marriage is an overrule, you're definitely going to see some chipping away um, in which religious exemptions prevent states from enforcing uh, civil rights laws. So I do think that even if the right to same sex marriage survives, that we're going to see the, the rights of uh, gay and lesbian uh, people and transgender people uh, and their civil rights uh, kind of undermined at least uh, on the margin. I think one other thing I would point out is that, um, you know, there's typically sort of we think of justices kind of as, you know, as Scott was saying, as sort of uh, aligned on sort of conservative uh, liberal axis. Uh, but th those those kind of divisions don't always capture all the all the ways that we can sort of think about justices. Um, and, you know, civil liberties might not line up with economic liberties, uh, et cetera. Um, there's different ways of categorizing justices. Um, you know, one sort of small thing that I found interesting interesting is that Kavanaugh has a history of uh, of siding uh, with trade protections. Uh, so sort of uh, there's been a dispute on uh, on whether uh, country of origin labeling for meat is something that that uh, that is allowable. And uh, Kavanaugh uh, sided actually with sort of trade protectionism in that case. And this is this is it's, it would sort of be a, a decision. Uh, you know, this is a decision that he made a few years ago. This would be something that would be not that remarkable, except that this is sort of one of the areas areas where the Trump administration is sort of pushing the envelope in terms of Republican orthodoxy, sort of pursuing sort of a more protectionist trade policy. And so far, you've seen members of Congress basically unwilling uh, to provide a check and a balance against the administration for basically for fear that uh, he's going to take the side of uh, of their primary opponent, uh, you know, in South Carolina with Lindsey Graham or what have you. So the, the Congress has not really been performing that check and balance role. So there are now a number of cases working their way through the court system who would basically decide what's the limit of executive power when it comes to something like a trade war. And it, I think it's interesting that Kavanaugh is, is sort of the, the judge who's not only conservative along a lot of the axes and, and topics that we traditionally uh, think of as conservative, but he also sort of has a history of, of ruling in favor of trade protectionism, which is kind of this new element uh, that Trump has brought uh, into uh, into conservatism just in the last few years. Yeah, and it should be noted that this trade war isn't just an issue of kind of protectionism or the wisdom of terror, is that the, the relevant the statute gives the uh, president the power to unilaterally establish tariffs only in cases involving national security. And obviously, that's a bit of a, you know, it's not really clear what the national security uh, interest in putting a tariff on, you know, Canadian products is, for example. But, um, you know, then it becomes not just a question of protectionism, but also a question of executive power. And as it turns out, Kavanaugh, there's reason to believe he'll be very deferential in those ways as well. Um, you know, because, you know, he actually wrote a, a law review article arguing that not only should sitting presidents 
should be indicted or prosecuted. They shouldn't even be investigated, which is kind of amazing. He claims that he didn't understand when he was part of the star investigation that it would affect the energy of the presidency to be investigated. Um, so that could suggest on both elements that Kavanaugh would not be willing to rule that there isn't a, a national security consideration that as with Trump versus Hawaii, although admittedly a much less, uh, obviously not the same level of immorality, but that, you know, that would suggest that Kavanaugh would be a vote to say, you know, we'll take the president's word for it, that there's a national security justification for these tariffs. So what do you think the likelihood of Kavanaugh being confirmed before the midterms is? I, I don't want to say 100%. Uh, I think we've learned to get out of that game uh, in 2016, but very high. Uh, and I say that I don't, particularly given the, the audience of this podcast, I, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from, from acting. Uh, you know, I think you should never give up. Uh, they do have a very thin vote margin, but it's going to be difficult. Stopping, you know, trying to hold up the, uh, the nomination until the midterms. There's all kinds of procedural tricks that the minority can use uh, to uh, hold things up. Uh, but um, there's a couple of difficulties. The first of which is ultimately all of these things exist only, you know, if the majority tolerates them. So ultimately, if McConnell wants to move to a vote, he can do that. And this is literally the most important issue for him, the Supreme Court. And there's also the issue, too, is that it's a midterm election year. So these techniques that, you know, try to delay things will also require a whole bunch of Democrats in tough races to, uh, to be in the Senate and not campaign. In fact, McConnell is trying to keep them uh, in D.C. over the summer. And that's not symmetrical because uh, so many more Democrats are off than Republicans. So it's just going to be very difficult to sustain, uh, to sustain that kind of action. So almost certainly McConnell will get a vote. And then the only question is, um, you know, is it possible to get either Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski uh, to vote against the nominee? If, if McCain could vote, you would need both. If McCain can vote, um, you wouldn't necessarily. But, you know, that's a trick. But the problem is they voted for every uh, Trump nominee, uh, including Gorsuch. Um, and my guess is that there will be enough plausible deniability that Collins can vote without saying that she's doing what Gorsuch's way. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to try, um, you know, and you never know what will be revealed during the hearings or what we'll find out. Um, to give my honest assessment, um, uh, it, it's not, I, I don't like the odds. Um, my guess is that um, Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed and will be ready to go by the time the next court term starts. Yeah, and I think that really the I, I agree that I don't think that there's much of a chance that he's not ultimately uh, confirmed uh, before the midterm elections. But I do think that where this is going to be important is is what it's going to say about the Democrats. So you know, especially the Democratic presidential likely candidates, uh, you're going to have the voters and the and the sort of electoral base of the party looking to them to sort of take a strong stand, make strong statements. You know, in the past it was kind of I remember a time when it was fairly common where uh, members of the opposite political party would kind of more or less automatically vote to confirm judicial nominees so long as they have the basic qualifications. And I think it's clear here that Kavanaugh has the basic qualifications. But I think the politics around judicial nominees have, has changed so much that, there, and, you know, not only on this, but on any number of sort of procedural issues in Congress and, and sort of other issues in Congress, where I think that a lot of the voters that Democrats need to turn out in the midterm elections are going to be looking for sort of a strong, uh, a strong statement uh, on this. Yeah, and one really important goal is that, uh, you know, and there's been some remarkable polling that shows that, you know, the Supreme Court was much more important to Republicans than to Democrats in 2016. And this is despite the fact that Republicans had, had successfully obstructed uh, a Supreme Court nomination for Obama, which is leading to that situation Todd talks about where a president 
who lost the popular vote may provide four out of five votes of the majority. And it's kind of striking, but, you know, conservatives almost have this optimal situation where the court is predominantly conservative, but because of a few high profile liberal wins, liberals are happier with the court than conservatives. So I would hope that, um, you know, at a time there'll be more attention than usual to the Supreme Court, uh, Democratic politicians have to use this to point out the bad and unpopular decisions that have been made and will be made. That uh, we need a situation in which, you know, Democrats uh, turn out. You know, that there were a lot of Republican voters who didn't like Donald Trump personally, who didn't like his morality or whatever, uh, didn't trust a lot of things, but basically were persuaded to go and vote because of the Supreme Court. And that's not as true on the Democratic side. Uh, and uh, that needs to change. So, you know, can it be stopped? Likelihood is not. But uh, as, as Todd says, there's also the politics of it. And I think Democratic politicians need to make a strong stand and really also just indicate how important this is. You know, the bad things the court has done and will do. Uh, because right now, I think Democratic voters uh, don't place as much of a priority as they should. And that gives Republicans a real advantage. You know, if, if liberals uh, uh, took the court as seriously as conservatives did, Donald Trump wouldn't be president <laughs> right now. So um, that's this is really a chance where the Democrats have to start to try to turn the tide and at least make use of this politically, even if they can't uh, can't keep Kavanaugh off the court. So I think I think that's very interesting. Looking at the Democratic Party, you talked about the 2020 contenders. Something I'm actually curious about is the red state Democrats. Three Senate Democrats voted to confirm Gorsuch. A good chunk of the Senate Democratic Caucus votes to confirm Trump's judicial nominees. Not not just the red state Dems, solid blue state Dems as well. How many of the Democrats do you think are likely to vote for Kavanaugh? Especially given that there are a bunch of red state Dems up for re-election this year. I think uh, not all red states are created equal, right? So there's North Dakota and West Virginia are very different uh, propositions than a place like Ohio. Uh, you know, Ohio, Sherrod Brown uh, and is up for re-election in Ohio. Bob Casey is up for re-election in Pennsylvania. You know, these are states where labor unions matter a lot, where there are sort of large university towns, uh, where there's sort of, you know, professionals and people of color that matter a lot for the Democratic Party. And all of that gives those senators uh, more of a political base on which to have a muscular agenda of opposing Donald Trump's nominees, uh, even the, even if the state, you know, for various reasons, uh, went uh, went Republican in the last election cycle. I think it's different for states like North Dakota or, uh, or West Virginia, where, you know, Republicans have been winning there by a lot. Um, and they're just, spar- you know, relatively sparsely populated not that diverse. And I think that those senators are going to be looking over their back shoulder a little bit more to just make sure that they have the political support they need uh, to uh, to do to do something muscular here. And I, and I wouldn't really expect that much, to be perfectly honest. That doesn't mean um, the pressure shouldn't be p- uh, put on them, especially by their constituents in West Virginia, North, North Dakota. But if, if there's going to be defections, that's where I would be looking at, uh, at the defections coming from. Yeah, and Senator Casey of Pennsylvania has actually already come out against uh, Kavanaugh, which is interesting. Uh, you know, not only was it a state Trump won, but also he has at least some history of social conservatism, although not like his father. So that's interesting that even that, you know, kind of a marginal would, would come out immediately. I think there's also an issue of timing here that I think I hope that, that Senator Schumer can at least convince Manchin and Heidkamp not to say they will support um, Kavanaugh until every Republican is committed. Um, and, and people will disagree with me, but sort of if there are already 
clearly enough votes to confirm from the Republicans, then, you know, if senators from North Dakota and West Virginia want to cast a meaningless yes vote, I'm going to say, do, do what you have to do. But they shouldn't make it easier that at this point, it's really important to keep the pressure on Collins and Murkowski, not give them a free pass. So I would, at a minimum, hope that no Democrat will come out in favor of Kavanaugh unless there's a majority. You know, I think once there's a majority, then that's kind of a different consideration if you can't actually keep Kavanaugh off the court. Um, but I still think that it's, you know, as many Democrats vote against it as possible is, is important. Um, and there's no question that among the major contenders of Skillbrand, Harris, Sanders, um, they're going to be very forcefully against the nominee. Um, and hopefully will, that will give an impetus to other people in the, uh, in the caucus as well. But, you know, do, you know, it, it will be hard to hold everybody, especially if, um, Republicans nominate. But at the very least, I hope no Democrat will come out for Kavanaugh while the, the nomination is in doubt. Uh, that'll make it a lot easier for Collins and Murkowski. So at the very least, I hope that, uh, the Democrats won't do anything. And, and certainly I think a majority of the caucus will be strongly against them. But, there's one other thing I'd like to highlight there, too, is that another anti-democratic aspect of this is that it's hard for the Democrats because they're, you know, they have, you know, if we're going to, if the Democrats take back the Senate, they have to hold the seat like West Virginia, the Trump won by 40 points, um, that because the Senate represents these kind of uh, overwhelmingly white rural states, um, you know, Republicans just have a much wider plating field um, and can have a much more homogeneous caucus. And that's not, um, I should be clear, it's not to say that Manchin and Heitkamp aren't responsible for their actions and they shouldn't be pressured, but they shouldn't be criticized. Um, you know, they certainly should be on all counts. But it is also that the political landscape gives advantage to Republicans at every level, um, you know, so that, um, so that, you know, basically what is a minority party may be set up to take this huge Supreme Court majority, in part because of the way that our electoral system doesn't accurately reflect uh, national majorities. Um, if the Senate was more fairly proportioned, Democrats controlled the Senate in 2015 and Obama replaces uh, Scalia. So that's another, um, that there, there are failures of individual politicians that should be criticized, but we should also remember these systematic failures, which also, um, which this Supreme Court will exacerbate rather than try to alleviate. And I would just also point out that, I mean, the, the kind of uh, kind of play that Scott's, uh, you know, recommending here, which is that hold Manchin uh, and Heidkamp out for as long as possible so that they actually don't declare what their position is until it's clear where Collins and Murkowski is going to go. I think that that's that's not only a really important play for Democrats to consider, but it's also one that Republicans in the past have been very good about doing for their own members. So, you know, I remember when Tom DeLay and sort of other uh, legislative leaders in the past knew that it was going to be hard for some of their members to take certain votes, but they but they also knew that there was a partisan advantage in forcing the Democrats uh, to vote against their own political base, whether that's a labor question or a trade question or what have you. So they're, they're good at realizing that even if they're going to lose some of their members uh, that hold those members' positions out as long as possible to inflict sort of maximum partisan damage on the other side. I think there's value in that, even if at the end of the day, Manchin ends up voting for this nominee. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout-out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So speaking of systemic problems, what reforms should we make to the Supreme Court? Uh, I can I can jump in there with just kind of one idea. I mean, I, I wrote a piece uh, a week or two ago uh, in Jacobin that was sort of looking at uh, the history uh, in 1937 of when Franklin Roosevelt confronted sort of a very uh, a very oppositional Supreme Court. Uh, in that case, I mean, he had sort of uh, six out of nine justices that were over 70 years old. You know, the majority of them had been sort of voting fairly systematically 70 percent of the time uh, against sort of New Deal priorities. Uh, this was at the, the the worst of the Great Depression, sort of, you know, one of the most consequential moments in U.S. history. And he sort of had to make a decision much like the next uh, presidential, uh, next Democratic presidential contender, and then ultimately Democratic president will have to make, which is that, you know, with a Supreme Court uh, full of fairly, you know, in this case, unlike Roosevelt's time, and then, you know, actually young conservative people that are likely to be there uh, for a few decades to come. Does does that nominee, does that president want to give up on their uh, on their agenda, or uh, do uh, do they sort of want to let uh, you know, or do, do they want to sort of address some of the fundamental imbalances and, and disadvantages that they see when they look at the court? You know, what Roosevelt recommended at that time period, what he, what he contemplated doing, what he threatened doing, was uh, was appointing a new justice for every justice that was over the age of 70, which could have uh, led him to uh, appoint as many as six additional justices, making the court uh, a court of 15. Before you sort of say that sounds crazy um, uh, or unconstitutional or both, you know, it's important to know that there's nothing in the Constitution that sets uh, the number of justices at nine. And in fact, it's 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 uh, it's vacillated over time between five and 10, you know, in different periods. And Congress has sort of set the number at different numbers of justices. And I think that the next cross of Democratic presidential nominees is going to have to think seriously about whether they want to commit, uh, as you know, a number of political scientists and historians have recommended, to sort of at least make the threat uh, of expanding uh, the, the number of justices on the court. That's sort of one of, you know, you, you can't fire justices without, uh, you know, uh, breaking the Constitution. You can impeach them, but you can't sort of remove them just, you know, as you would sort of a normal employee or, or, or normal executive branch official. So th- you have to sort of think in terms of what David Ferris, a political scientist, calls constitutional hardball, which, you know, by the way, this is kind of what the Republicans have been doing uh, for many years now by, you know, refusing to allow a vote on uh, Barack Obama's uh, last judicial nominee. So, you know, it's it, it's an unfortunate situation that this is kind of the thing that we this is one of the kinds of things that we would need to start talking about but I think it is it is time to begin sort of grappling with you know realistically how are we going to accomplish progressive objectives in the next uh, the next administration uh, if we don't deal with some sort of systematic reform of the judiciary yeah and of course I, I also uh, had an article in the new Republic uh, uh, fairly recently about this and I think that you know and it's got a lot of attention I think articles like mine and Todd's have sort of been portrayed as you know liberals think court hacking is awesome, you know, which, you know, and it's 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 more complicated than that. I mean, obviously, of 
course, you know, court packing has real downsides. You know, it wouldn't provide a permanent advantage for Democrats. It would just sort of start off another tit for tat cycle of, of you know of retaliation. All things being equal, a nine, the nine member equilibrium is probably better. Uh, but having said that, what's also not really acceptable is imagine Trump gets another nominee and there's a very conservative uh, majority uh, appointed by you know almost entirely of presidents who didn't win the popular vote, confirmed by senators who don't represent a majority of the people. Well, that's not a democratically acceptable situation either. Uh, you know, and uh, there are times when constitutional hard votes call for. So I think at least it's something that has to be considered. Um, you know, and that will depend on, you know, again, FDR, you know, the Democrats didn't need to carry through in 1937 because the courts um, upheld, ended up upholding New Deal legislation. And it's possible that if John Roberts is still the, um, you know, the median vote, you may get a conservative court, but a conservative court that will at least allow the next Democratic Congress to govern and not strike down its major legislative priorities. But if you get a Supreme Court that strikes down, you know, a Medicare for all, or at least, you know, a bill that strongly expands Medicaid and Medicare, or, you know, strikes down, you know, a national minimum wage uh, at a higher level, something like that, then I think, you you know, it's something you have to consider. Uh, the other thing I'd point out, and I, uh, Brian uh, Butler had a, a great piece on this uh, recently, Crooked Media, is that we shouldn't just be thinking about reforms of the court, but democratic reforms, which are, of course, part of the reason, you know, as we've been talking about, part of the reason Republicans control the Supreme Court is the structural advantage they have. So he points out that we should see, um, in reaction to this in part, um, that, you know, really major, the next Democratic Congress should do really major voting rights reform, um, trying to get um, non-partisan redistricting, um, you know, granting statehood to Washington, D.C., and if they want to, to Puerto Rico, um, you know, trying to get um, public financing of elections. So if the Supreme Court won't allow us to restrict spending, at least make more funding available, you know, reforms like that, because, you know, ultimately, you know, court packing, um, it's only, you know, it, it, it's a solution that lasts only as long as you control the government, <laughs> fundamentally. Um, so it may be a necessary tool, but this needs to be, you know, that really Democrats just on a broad level need to think more structurally. Uh, Republicans are just laser focused on what changes can be made to the rules that will benefit them. And Democrats are doing that even though things that would generally benefit Democrats would make things more Democratic rather less so they'd be justified in both principle and uh, in many cases practical terms. So I really like that, that it's not, uh, that it should, you know, court packing or other kind of hardball packing should be seen as kind of one-offs. Um, but, you know, we should also be just thinking more about how to get at some of these, you know, structural issues. Some things like the malapportionment of the sediment are hard to deal with other than um, than the D.C. federal statehood, but other things are changeable. Uh, and I think Democrats who haven't paid a lot of attention to things like uh, to voting reform in the past, uh, that's something that we really need to focus on more strongly. I spoke with David Ferris recently about his proposals. Something we discussed as one of the biggest roadblocks is that the Democratic Party is pretty obsessed with decorum, with procedure. That's the grounds on which they've attacked the Republican Party so much. They've criticized them for bending the rules, breaking the rules. How do we get over that roadblock? Well, I think sort of an interesting thing, uh, you know, going back from further from U.S. history is that, you know, a lot of times now conservative uh, judicial nominees uh, reference uh, sort of their so-called originalism or sort of the respect for sort of the way that the founding fathers and the founding generation uh, originally intended the Constitution to be interpreted. 
included. Um, and, you know, we can kind of debate how accurate that self-description is, but it's at least rhetorically part of the way that they justify uh, is this sort of fealty and loyalty to the idea of the way things used to be. Um, if you go back and sort of look at the historical record of the founding generation and sort of the the sort of colonialists that broke off from uh, from British rule, they were they would have been surprised at sort of how how loyal and rigid uh, you know later generations uh, of policymakers were to the things that they set in stone. I mean, I don't think there was the expectation that many of them would have not have expected a situation where so many aspects of the constitutional bargain were stable for so long. There was a lot of uh, acceptance towards things like impeachment, uh, you know, among the among the founding generation. There was a lot of enthusiasm for ideas of, you know, freak, more frequent constitutional conventions to modify the constitution. You know, it was, it was what, uh, it was what some authors call popular constitutionalism, which is this idea that sort of direct action, uh, direct dem- democratic participation can lead to sort of an ongoing perpetual renewal uh, of democratic practices. Um, you know, I think that, you know, what we've seen over the last several decades is that, you know, the number of lawyers uh, in, in the economy uh, is sort of a share of the population has gone up, you know, it's it's uh, you have sort of all of these folks uh, in Congress that are also sort of you know many of them lawyers and sort of uh, very deferential to uh, to the way things have been done. It's not in keeping with sort of the best of our constitutional tradition, which is more dynamic, uh, which is more changing, and that's something that I think you know even ideas like court packing, like other things that sort of sound a little a little wacky or a little uh, a little off the wall. I think it's important to sort of put ideas like that on the table uh, on an ongoing basis, just to remind us all that we're not sort of chained to the weight of the past. We do have options. We can sort of make our dem- democracy more vibrant. Uh, and there's there's no reason why some of these obstacles should be uh, perceived as insurmountable. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that I think there's a really important distinction to be made. My colleague Dan Nexon calls, you know, democratic values and merely norms. That obviously, simply because we've been doing things for a way, doesn't make that inherently valuable or justifiable. So there's one thing, you know, it's bad that Donald Trump is violating norms against, you know, personal corruption, you know, sexual assault, you know, that that there are certain norms that really are fundamental to democracy. And, you know, it's not as if Democrats should emulate that by, well, our next president should be a crook too. Uh, but there are also other, you know, uh, traditions that I think Democrats have kind of upheld that aren't important in themselves and also aren't being reciprocated. And the best example of that would be uh, Pat Leahy, the Democratic chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, allowed uh, the continuation of what's known as the blue slip that is allowing home state senators to sort of not to put a hold on confirming uh, a circuit court justice. And so what happened is that, you know, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin was able to hold up several nominees. And then as soon as Republicans take over, uh, they don't respect the blue slips of, uh, of, of Tammy Baldwin, the Democratic senator. And that's a situation where it was already obvious that Democrat that Republicans weren't going to adhere to the norm. So it was just ridiculous for um, for Leahy to continue to, to enforce it. But, you know, sometimes there's just, you know, there's this really strong belief that, you know, if you adhere to the norms, they'll come back. And you have to pay attention to, A, both how valuable the norm is and whether it's being reciprocated. Um, and, and a lot of the, you know, and a lot of the, the kind of people who have been in the way of reforms, and this is not necessarily a liberal conservative breakdown in the caucus. Um, a lot of the people most committed to procedure over the last couple of decades have been solid liberals like Leahy, Russ Feingold of Wisconsin, who unfortunately uh, lost uh, in 2016. Um, a very good man in a lot of ways, very principled in civil liberties, but a very strong adherence to kind of Senate traditions, Senate procedures. 
um, even though those procedures are not necessarily that democratically valuable and certainly are of no value whatsoever if they're not being reciprocated. Um, now, having said that, and you, you know, I think that the kind of younger generation of uh, democratic politicians does seem to get it. Um, you know, Kristen you know, Gilbrand has been, you know, very strong against, you know, opposed to virtually all of Trump's nominations. Um, and I think that we're seeing that, that, uh, you know, I think partly this is the influence of, of Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, surprisingly successful primary challenge. But, you know, I think that, that I think that there is a younger generation of senators who don't have this adherence to the way things used to be done um, uh, is as much generational as ideological. So I think there's at least some reason for optimism uh, in this direction. And I agree, Jordan, that this Supreme Court fight will be a really good indication of that, that it's not the Democrats' fault if Kavanaugh gets confirmed with every Republican vote. But I do think that Democrats kind of owe their constituents um, a good fight. They need to start trying to reorient the debate and certainly make things as hard as possible. So I think that this will be a good indication of whether you know Democrats recognize that that, that the norms on this have, have fundamentally changed. So what can our listeners do to take action? How can they make an impact? I think the first thing you can do is is definitely reach out to your uh, to your senators, both of them. Give them a call. Uh, let them know that you want to see your values reflected in the way that they handle uh, this confirmation. You know, this is a really important time to uh, for your senators to sort of project uh, values of the party they belong to uh, and to project sort of the values of of of, of you, the voters. Um, so it's it's important to. To get out in front uh, and 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 to sort of to articulate that now, uh, and I think that you know it's the easy thing for a lot of members to do uh, would be to be quiet at, at this at this moment. Uh, and you, for those members that are so and senators that are so inclined to not make comments, now's the time to make comments. Um, and and some civic pressure uh, can help to uh, to overcome that initial stage fright. Yeah, I think that's very important. Uh, and and even if you know you're you're in a state in which, uh, you know, you can be pretty confident that your senator will vote against them. There's also the nature of, you know, how much will they talk about it? How much priority will they put on it? Um, you know, that you, you hope that your, your senator will follow the lead. So obviously, uh, one reason that Senator Casey felt comfortable coming in so soon is that he's obviously getting uh, feedback, as, as Todd mentioned, from labor groups, from his constituents, you know, in matters. Um, you know, so that, you know, let your, uh, your senators know that this is an important issue. And, uh, you know, and, and tell, you know, that if you have politically informed friends, um, you know, tell them. Uh, there's obviously a lot of good stuff out there about um, what the implications of this are, uh, not just about Roe versus Wade, although that's immensely important, but also about voting rights, uh, about the rights of labor, about economic rights, and really the, the potential for the next uh, democratic uh, government to govern. You know, that uh, even if Democrats take over in, in 2021, um, and we have, you know, a, a, a candidate running on a, on a progressive platform, which will almost certainly be true, uh, and, and uh, unusually progressive uh, caucus, uh, if the Supreme Court will strike down the legislation that's passed, it doesn't do much good. So, uh, you know, make sure to, to you know, let your politically informed friends know, people who are interested uh, how important this is, um, and really see this as a, as a long-term battle. And that also means, of course, you know, being aware of, of primary elections, uh, you know, rewarding uh, politicians who are, you know, uh, Democratic politicians who are doing well, um, challenging people who aren't, um, you know, just always uh, uh, exerting pressure and just think of it as, you know, this may be a battle that we'll lose, uh, but you also have to see it as part of a longer struggle. So, uh, as, as, as uh, uh, I may not have the uh, great news about Kavanaugh, but, 
um, you know, it's, it's certainly important not to be uh, discouraged long term. And I think that that's where um, arguments like uh, Todd's about, uh, you know, not uh, accepting things are really important that, uh, that we need to maintain, um, you know, sort of democratic vitality, um, even during what's a, a, a pretty depressing moment in, in American political history. Okay, great. To your answers, not to the depressing moment. <laughs> so, uh, lastly, where can folks find you online? Uh, I'm at Todd. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Todd N. Tucker. Uh, N is in Nathaniel, and uh, and you can also check out RooseveltInstitute.org uh, for for stuff not only that I've done but that my colleagues have done. And I would also just kind of throw a pitch to uh, the new organization Demand Justice, which is uh, a kind of muscular organization that's been put together to sort of fight this confirmation fight and also sort of fight the fight of making the judiciary uh, better uh, for future generations. And uh, I would check them out as well at uh, DemandJustice.org. And uh, readers can find me on Twitter at uh, Lemieux LGM. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X LGM. Uh, and that stands for my, uh, we're one of the last remaining political blogs out there at uh, Lawyers, Guns and Money. Uh, uh, I blog there along with my colleague Eric Loomis, who writes a lot about labor history uh, and, uh, and many other writers. Uh, so um, I hope you'll check us out. And you can find my writing in a variety of places, uh, most, uh, most recently at uh, NBC News and writers. And uh, today, uh, for people who are interested in the abortion issue, uh, Vox generously allowed me to publish a, uh, uh, a fairly lengthy piece debunking common myths about Roe versus Wade. Um, there's going to be various strategies that people, and not all of them uh, uh, anti-choice, are going to use to kind of minimize the effects of overruling Roe. Um, and, and it's an article about uh, why that's not true. Um, so definitely maybe uh, be for, uh, for voters who, uh, who uh, care about reproductive freedom but aren't necessarily up on the uh, the legal issues. I, I hope that would be useful. But uh, but I, I really appreciate everybody uh, for uh, listening today. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, of course. Uh, and we hope to have you on again. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.